0: Today's scripture portion is taken from 1st Corinthians chapter 12 verses 1 to 11. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. However, you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, My name is Brant. I'm uh, one of the pastors here at Christ City Church in Kitsilano, and it's my joy to, to welcome you here. If you are new, welcome here for the first time. It's great to have you uh, with us. Um, I've been uh, grateful um, to be here for a number of years now, and it's my joy, again, to bring you the word of God this morning. Uh, as we begin, though, would you join me in a word of prayer? We need to ask the Lord to help us as we unpack his word. Yeah, Father, we come before you, and we come uh, poor and needy, and yet rich in Christ Jesus. Lord, we have great need for your salvation, great need for your spirit this morning to help us, to enrich us in every way, to cause us to grow up into life that is real life in Jesus Christ, to, to, to live in a way that is meaningful and um, fruitful in this world, Uh, to glorify you, to to live uh, as worshipers of the triune God of the universe. And yet, God, we know that um, you are abundant in generosity towards us this morning. Uh, So we come and we ask you, would you help us to understand your word? Uh, Would you help us to grow in Christ? Would you help us to see who he is and to to just be full of awe and worship this morning before him? Um, And Lord, we ask these things in the confidence of kids who have a good father who loves us. But we know that you're for us. We praise you. We thank you for your generosity. Amen. Well, in 1950, the great English author C.S. Lewis, uh, the Oxford Dawn, he began writing this series, the series, of Chronicles of Narnia, with his first book, The Lion and the Witch and the Wardrobe. And Lewis was a former atheist. He was a professor at the University of Oxford, and he converted to Christianity. And this conversion was this powerful event in his life whereby he became utterly convinced of God's goodness, of the the power of the word of God, the power of Jesus Christ to change this world. And you might be wondering, Brent, I thought we were talking about spiritual gifts, and here we are talking about C.S. Lewis. What's the connection? Well, I wanted to talk about C.S. Lewis briefly because there is a connection in one of his books, The Lion, and the uh, Witch, and the Wardrobe, that is very helpful for us to set the scene for the stage this morning. Because in the first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's this beautiful scene that goes like this. What's happening, if you're not familiar with the story, is that, that there is this evil white witch, and she has cast a spell over the entire world of Narnia, the, the kingdom of Narnia, and it has resulted in an eternal winter. It's always winter and never Christmas. It's kids' books, right? And so, you know, there's that phraseology, always winter, never Christmas. Uh, but as Aslan is on the move, as, as the Christ figure, Aslan, begins to, to invade this world with his power, the, the power of the white witch begins to melt. So the children are, are fleeing from her. They're, they're escaping, trying to evade her. as if She wants to catch them and do terrible things to them. Uh, they notice that the snow is melting, and they actually encounter for the first time in millennia, Father Christmas. It's clear that her power is breaking, and Aslan's power is on the rise. And as they encounter Father Christmas, the children heroes are given gifts. Father Christmas gives these children gifts. Gifts that it churns out in the story of the lion, the witch, and the Wardrobe, and actually in the rest of the chronicle of Narnia, gifts that will equip these children to participate in the expansion of the good gifts that will equip these children to participate in the expansion of Aslan's kingdom as he presses against the forces of evil and darkness in this world. Lucy is given a vial with precious drops that are able to heal. Susan is given a a magic horn to summon help in time of need and a bow and arrow that shoots with incredible accuracy and and eliminates uh, enemies and wickedness. And Peter, who eventually becomes the high king, he is given a sword and a shield to rule With justice in the world under the reign of Aslan. And I think that Lewis had the gifts of the Spirit in mind as he wrote these words. I think he did for a number of reasons. If you've read them before, you know that these books are just rife with analogies to Christianity, rife, very full with beautiful depictions of our Christian faith throughout history and in the Bible. And Lewis was a man, after all, who saw a world in great need of salvation. This is 1950 when he wrote this first book. He'd just come off the back of two world wars that he's lived through. He's seen the efforts of humanity to to make changes in this world for good and he's watched them fail brutally and he actually has grave concerns about the direction that the modern world is heading. And in this world, he believed that Jesus had gifted his church to participate in the good work of building the kingdom of God. Here's a connection with our text this morning. Look at 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7, which we read, which Levina read for us. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. See, the children's gifts and the gifts of the Spirit, they have a purpose, a global purpose that it be used by us to bring life into a world of death, that it be used to heal wounds and to assist others in Vancouver in becoming more truly human, becoming all that they were created to be. It's to assist us to love others in this church and to serve them for the glory of Jesus Christ. And what happens as we are given these gifts then is that the world looks at us and the church using the gifts that God has given and they're drawn together to worship, not us, but the very good God who is at work here, who is gifting us to do good in this world. So as we look at each of the nine gifts this morning, I want your minds and your hearts to be expanded. To see the glorious purpose of god in giving each of these gifts our outline's really simple there are nine gifts we're going to have nine points so so don't be too worried uh we're not going to have a nine of brent's normal points uh they'll, they'll be a little shorter uh however um there's a lot to cover and we're going to go through it in some detail this morning and as we begin i want you to look at the chart that i've prepared on the screen from five different passages in the bible cuz it's important for us as we look at this to know that Paul's list in 1 Corinthians 12 it's not an exhausted list, exhaustive list of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. You see, Paul speaks of gifts elsewhere, and others do as well in the Bible. And actually, last week, if you remember from verses 4 to 6 in chapter 12, we even saw that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are even only one subcategory of all the incredible ways that God is at work gifting and equipping his church to share in the work that he's doing in this world. And that's important for us to keep in mind. So keep that in mind. And with that in mind, I want you to hang on to three guiding principles for us as you unpack each of the nine gifts. Three guiding principles. First, Christ City, be encouraged. You may read this list and think, I don't have any of those gifts. Or I don't know if I have any of those. Or I'm not sure how I might find out if I have any of those. No matter what the case, as you come to this text, know if you are a Christian and a believer in Jesus Christ, you are gifted. You are gifted to participate in the good work of your father. And the best way for you to grow to understand your own gifts isn't simply by taking some kind of a test, like a personality test or the Christian version of a personality test and looking at uh, this passage. The best way for you to grow in knowing what your gifts are is by serving. You have the spirit, serve the Lord. There's so many ways for you to do that right here in this church and you will grow in knowing what your gifts are as you do that. Second point that we need to guide us is this, in the words of the PhD author-theologian Jean-Jacques Sermont, it's not so much a matter of having a gift as of being a gift. You see, Christ City, God has gifted you to be a gift. We can get our attention all in this text about having a gift, but it's not so much about that. It's much, so much more about being a gift to others, to participate in the good work that God is doing in this world. And then lastly, last guiding principle for us this morning, don't ever forget that each of these gifts are always shining a spotlight on Jesus. They're all shining a spotlight on Jesus, not on us. So keep these things in mind as we look at the first two gifts and our first points uh, that Paul mentions and read verses 7 to 8 each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good for to one is given through the spirit the utterance of wisdom and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the spirit you see how efficient i'm being i said i said nine points but here's 2 Right? all right we're gonna, we're gonna try and double a couple of these up as we go through there's two gifts described here with two little words in Greek. four two words each so so four words total uh logos sophias and logos nocios what does that mean well, logos can mean a literal word. It's often translated a word. But usually it means something a bit broader than that, which is why we have utterance here. For example, for example, today if you're in your 30s and you're trying to be cool and if you're an American and you you, you think that you still have it, you might use word as an affirmation of some kind like the cool Batman behind me. And the point is that in Greek, in the Bible's day, or Today in our lives, you can translate logos and word can mean more than, or logos can mean more than just word. And in this case, in the Corinthian correspondence, it was a shorthand way of referring to an articulate communication of some kind. What is word? An articulate communication of some kind. Hence the ESV translates utterance of wisdom, utterance of knowledge. So it's a communication or an utterance of wisdom, Or of knowledge. And that's interesting because when we look at the context of 1 Corinthians, we know Paul has already written a lot about wisdom and knowledge in the letter. This is so important for us in this text and in all of our Bible reading to read the Bible in context. Pay attention to what the author has said before, to what he's saying in this passage around the passage because it will help you understand what's being said here. And we know a little bit about the ancient Corinthian context and it's going to help us further understand wisdom and knowledge because Corinth was a place of learning and philosophy. Corinth was a place where everyone wanted to show how smart they were by the latest theories and the latest ideas that they espoused and they could communicate and articulate to their friends. But Paul confronts all of that in 1 Corinthians 8.1. He says, look, that kind of man-centered knowledge, all it does is puff up. This knowledge just puffs up, but love builds up. And he knew that the Corinthians tendency to boast about what a person knew, that it didn't produce anything of real value in the world. All it did is it would lead to these interesting dinner parties where people argued a lot. Maybe you've been to a few of those. (laughs) Maybe you've participated in a couple. Maybe you're planning on going to one after this uh, for Thanksgiving. And Paul confronts them. Paul wrote to the Corinthians about true wisdom and knowledge that comes to us through the person of Jesus Christ. And he said famously in 1 Corinthians 1, 21 to 25, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul is adamant on this point. He's adamant about showing that wisdom in the Bible is all about how life works best. And the Bible teaches that life works best not when we live by our own intuition to promote ourselves and our own pride and strength, but rather when we are shaped by the cross of Jesus to live like him. That's where wisdom and knowledge and power actually are. That's what will shape this world for good. So I'm wondering, Christ said, I'm wondering this morning, We're back in 1 Corinthians. We're talking about this stuff. Which wisdom are you trying to live by right now? Are you living by the world's wisdom or by the crosses? Do you tend to think that you will get ahead in life and accomplish good in this world by living through your personal strength, by taking pride in yourself, by laboring for your own personal advancement and advantage. See, the wisdom of the cross is different. The wisdom of the cross shows us a crucified and a suffering Savior who's bringing life into this world through his sacrificial death. The cross shows us that unless we too are humble like Jesus in his humility, confessing our own sins and coming to him as a savior that we all need, that unless we do that, we can't be saved by Jesus, that we can't actually be useful for good in this world to the glory of God. The cross teaches us that to be Jesus' disciples, we actually must learn to follow the example of Jesus who laid his life down for others in humble sacrifice. See, the wisdom of the cross, it looks weak and it looks foolish. It's not just about self-promotion, but it is true wisdom and it produces what is truly valuable and good in this world. So that's what Paul's been talking about in this letter. And that means that in context, when we look at an utterance of knowledge or utterance of wisdom here as a gift of the Spirit, that that's talking about something specific. It's talking about this. It's talking about when someone, but the power of the Holy Spirit speaks the counterintuitive truth of the cross of Jesus into a given situation. What is an utterance of wisdom? What is an utterance of knowledge? this, it's when someone, by the power of the Spirit, speaks the counterintuitive truth of the cross of Jesus into a given situation. I'm going to give you a few examples so you see what we're talking about. This happens, I think, more often than we realize here at Christ City Church. It happens when someone might say in their own wisdom, hey, you got to promote yourself, man. you got to live for yourself. A Christian speaking a word of wisdom might confront that and say, actually, you might consider how how Jesus must increase in your life. You might consider how it is always worth it to sacrifice for him and to lay yourself down. An utterance of wisdom or knowledge might happen when a man might say or a woman might say, you know, you really got to clamp down and be more controlling to get what you want. That's how to exercise a leadership or or your your authority over the sphere of influence that you have. And the, the word of wisdom would say, no, no, look at Jesus. He led by humbly becoming a servant of others. And we must lead the same way by serving humbly and sacrificially for the good of those around us. A word of wisdom or knowledge might happen when one says, don't be weak. Don't confess your sin. It's too tough. And the word of wisdom or of knowledge would come around and say, the only way that we grow in life that is truly life is in humility, is in vulnerability before a mighty savior to whom all of us must bow. So confess freely and come to Jesus. Christ City, I think words of wisdom and knowledge happen here a lot more than we realize. And I pray that they would increase that we would all speak to one another full of the Holy Spirit in words of wisdom and of knowledge as God's gift to help us to grow. All right, we looked at first two things. I knocked them out together, words of wisdom and of knowledge. And now third, we're looking at verse 9, the gift of faith. Paul continues, he says, all right, to these to this gift, that gift to another, faith given by the same Spirit. So, yes, you might be thinking, how is faith a gift of the Spirit? Isn't it true, Brant, that everyone who believes in Jesus Christ has faith? Yes, that's true. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. So everyone who believes in Jesus Christ has faith. But the gift of faith that Paul's talking about here is a different sort of faith. Something talking about something more specific. I think it's talking about the faith that Jesus speaks of in Matthew 17, verse 20. Look at that text. Jesus says there, for truly I say to you, if you have faith as small as a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here and it will move and nothing will be impossible to you. That's what Jesus said. And before you try this out, so I know there's a danger in talking about this text, Right? And that, that that you're gonna go around and your friend's gonna catch you this week, swearing in frustration and yelling at rocks to make the move. Because surely rocks are smaller than mountains, you might have that much faith, right? You know, before you do that, no, Jesus is speaking metaphorically here. He's speaking metaphorically, and actually, only one page before he says that in Matthew 17, he actually says something else that's very significant. He's promised in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. See, Jesus is a Savior God who is building his church. He's powerfully at work, but he always uses instruments, he always uses means, he always uses his church to build and he's given gifts of faith to move metaphorical mountains. He's given gifts of faith to, to men and women like yourselves and to other men and women throughout history to take part in building that church, in doing that good, in accomplishing his kingdom purposes in this world. I want to show you a couple of examples, just briefly. See, in the past, in great faith, some Christians cared for orphans and the poor. In great faith, the 19th century George Mueller built orphanage after orphanage after orphanage, never communicating the needs that he had, the financial needs, but just bringing them before God in prayer, trusting that God would provide in his poverty to care for these thousands of children in England. In great faith, others in history have given their lives to see the Bible translated into their own languages or into the languages of another people who do not yet have the Bible. And they did it in great faith, trusting in the words of Jesus that God would work through their small human efforts to build his kingdom through his word in powerful ways. And God has honored that prayer, Christ. The Bible and the translation of the Bible has worked to transform this world in more ways than you realize. You know, I actually think that one of the saddest things about the church today is how faithless we have become. And I think it's probably true that there are many times when, when we, in this room, we don't look at the world full of faith in the promise of Jesus to build his church. Right? We don't look at it as an open canvas where the Spirit of God is powerfully present in our lives that we could actually accomplish great things for Jesus. And so we're a little fatalistic and we're a little defeated and we hold back. But Jesus is building his church. And he gives gifts of faith so that we can join with him in that work and the confidence of all that he has promised. Isn't that beautiful? He gives gifts of faith to the church. So that someone here might have a gift of faith that encourages and inspires us to get behind something for the good of what God is doing in this world. It's awesome. Christ City, I want to ask you some questions here. Who is it after all who planted Willingdon Mennonite Brethren Church? Who is it that planted Westside Church that was planted out of Willingdon? Who is it that planted Christ City Church that was planted outside of Westside? Who is it that is planting churches in the Christ City network? Who is it that is planted the churches in Vancouver? Was it not men and women of great faith who believed the promises of God and sacrificed to see them accomplished? That's what it was. That's what it is. Christ City, I want to I encourage you. Pray for great gifts of faith to be given to us. That we might join Jesus in his work here we've covered the first three gifts. Now let's look at the fourth in verse nine. To another, gifts of healing by the one spirit. Man, there's a lot to say here about gifts of healing. Uh, we're not going to be able to, to dive in this nearly as deeply as we ought to. But first, let me say this. This verse is not talking about Creflo Dollar or Joyce Myers or Benny Hinn or any other faith healer that you have seen on TV or in a podcast that's popular flying around in their private jet. This is not talking about that great and horrendous evil and plague on the church. See, these men and women who claim to be healers in that way, they look nothing like what Paul's talked about in 1 Corinthians. They glory in themselves They profit uh, by the the poverty of others. They make themselves rich and they fleece the flock of Christ. This has nothing to do with them. If you want to talk to me about any of that at any time, I'd love to give you a lot of resources and we can dig in more. But that's all I'm going to say about that first. So what are the gifts of healing if it's not faith healers? Uh, Well, notice first that the gift is a plural gift. It's not just a gift of healing someone makes a ministry by to profit themselves. It's gifts of healing in general and in a variety of ways that have been given to the church of Christ. There's more than one. It's gifts of healing, right? By the one spirit. And I think that means that a lot of things are included. I'm going to name three things that are included. It means that answered prayers for healing are included. It means that the outright miraculous events that we see in the Bible, like Peter's healing of the cripple in Acts 3, who takes up his mat and walks and shouts and praises God, that that's included. It means that even the careful and the attentive effort of gifted people throughout history to bring healing to the sick by the power of the Spirit is included. An example, the first sort of healing answer prayer, it happened to someone very recently that, that Heather and I know and love. His name is Bill. I won't give you his last name for privacy's sake. But uh, I actually was grieving just a few months ago that I didn't get the chance to say goodbye to Bill because Bill had fourth uh, stage cancer and he was given a very short prognosis. It was a very serious and aggressive form of cancer and the church was praying for him and I, I encountered him one day and I, didn't, I had forgotten about the diagnosis because we're not at that same church that we used to be part of a long time ago and we just kind of passed and I came home and we, I didn't say goodbye. I didn't say goodbye to this man. Then a few weeks later, we got an email from the church saying, God's answered our prayers, Bill's healed. The doctors don't know what to say. Like it was shocking. Uh, his wife's in medicine. Uh, you know, he's like the people around were looking at this. What, what happened? Bill just was miraculously healed to the prayers of the church. Praise God. If you're a Christian here this morning and you've been the church for a long time, you know that this happens because you've seen it happen in your own lives. It's happened many times in, in my own life in various ways doesn't mean that every time we pray that that someone's healed doesn't mean that if we lack faith in some way that god won't heal it means that god heals us at his timing for his purposes for the prayers of his people it's a beautiful and a good thing there's an example of the second kind of healing. That's the extravagant and miraculous kind. And the examples are the things that I've already mentioned, like what we saw in Peter in the book of Acts. Uh, there are also things like um, the, the resurrection of the dead that we saw in Jesus' ministry or in Paul's ministry. We saw wild, miraculous healings of the blind, the deaf, throughout uh, the apostles' ministries. But these things, I do believe, still happen today at God's timing, in God's ways, as he chooses. I don't think we have precedent in scripture to say that they've stopped and yet God does not act in equal ways in every place at every time and in every church it's very important to know that God moves powerfully by his spirit and and gifts in these powerful ways when and how he desires and anecdotally I think it's worth noting that we often hear of some miraculous things in difficult contexts of the church and the church is struggling against, uh, uh, against the persecution that it faces. And God might be working powerfully in, in those contexts to advance his kingdom in those ways. He does it by his choosing. And that's okay. That's good. Just note that before we all think, okay, we're going to see the, the book of Acts come to life right here, right now. That might happen. <laughs> that might not. And if God chooses not to, it's okay. Third, I think gifts of healing include the regular efforts of mercy of people who have dedicated their lives to assist the sick and the dying. I believe that. And let me, let me tell you why I believe that. I believe that first because Paul didn't separate the supernatural from the, from the natural in the way that we do today, right? So you, have, you bring this, this division in your mind to scripture that Paul didn't have. And the division is that, ah, this is a miraculous event and this one isn't. Paul thought of a whole world where the Spirit was at work in his church and that the Spirit was miraculously working in the the wonderful resurrections and crazy things we see in Acts. He was also at work in shaping people moment by moment in the church to make them more like Jesus. And Paul saw that and he said, that is miraculous because that's how he would have thought about it. For example, I want you to realize that The regular work of the Holy Spirit to form his church to be full of the mercy of Jesus is a miraculous thing in this world that is only possible because Jesus Christ lived and died and was truly resurrected in this world. The resurrection changes everything. I want to show you some examples from history and a very long quote. This is a quote from David Bentley Hart, one of my favorite authors. He's an incredible theologian and philosopher and historian, and he comments uh, about these things, and he says... This And I'd be happy to send you his footnotes and his references if you want to explore this more. There's a lot of literature on this. He says, there was after all a long tradition of Christian monastic hospitals for the destitute and dying, going back to the days of Constantine and stretching from the Syrian and Byzantine East to the Western fringes of Christendom. A tradition, note this, that had no real precedent in pagan society. That's significant. There weren't really hospitals that you and I would think of as hospitals before Jesus was resurrected. That's really important to note because the miracle of the Holy Spirit working through his church produced a mercy in the world that was different than what was there before. Saint Ephraim the Syrian is one example. 306 to 373. When the city of Edessa was ravaged by plague, he established hospitals open to all who were afflicted. St. Basil the Great, 329 to 379, founded a hospital in Cappadocia with a ward set aside for the care of lepers, whom he did not disdain to nurse with his own hands. Sounds like Jesus, sounds like sacrifice. St. Benedict of Nursia from 8480 to 547 opened a free infirmary at Monte Cassino and made care of the sick a paramount duty of his monks. In Rome, the Christian noblewoman and scholar St. Fabiola, who died in 399, she established the first public hospital in Western Europe. In the 400, 399, that's a long time ago. Despite her wealth and position, she would often venture out into the streets personally to seek out those who needed care. St. John Chrysostom from 347 to 407. Well, Patriarch of Constantinople used his influence to fund several such institutions in the city. And in the Diaconii of Constantinople, for centuries, many rich members of the laity labored to care for the poor and ill, bathing the sick, ministering to their needs, assisting them with alms. During the Middle Ages, the the Benedictines alone were responsible for more than 2,000 hospitals in Western Europe. The 12th century was particularly remarkable in this regard, especially wherever the Knights of St. John, called the Hospitallers, were active. And Montpellier in 1145, for example, the great hospital of the Holy Spirit, interesting, gift of healing by the Spirit, hospital of the Holy Spirit, was founded soon becoming a center of medical training. And in 1221 of Montpellier's Faculty of Medicine, Look, it's often glossed over to today. I know we have medical students and doctors in the room and nurses in the room. I know you didn't study this in your training, but it is very clear in history and well, well documented that Christianity has had a world shaping influence on the history of medicine, on healing, even through things like scientific progress in medicine. Even that has roots in Christian thought and practice. So I think at this moment, nothing better for us to do than to plug the medical ethics class. Come to the medical ethics class, learn more about this sort of thing and see the way that Christianity thinks about healing. The point is that all of these gifts, these diversities of healings have been given to glorify the crucified Savior, Jesus Christ. They're here to glorify him and his mercy and his sacrifice, his resurrection power. Even the healings that he gives to us today in miraculous ways in the church, they're just foretaste of the way that all of us will one day soon be healed because salvation is holistic and we will be resurrected from the dead with Jesus Christ when he returns. He is a great healer and every healing points to him. Let's look now Then at the fifth gift, miracles, and in verse 10, Paul says to another, the working of miracles. This is a difficult phrase in Greek, and it certainly can mean miracles, but the words are actually powerful workings. That's the words in Greek, powerful workings, and they can be translated effective deeds of power. So so miracles is one thing. I think what Paul's saying here is actually inclusive of miracles, but speaks more broadly than that. And to really understand powerful workings, we need to look at the Corinthian context. So it's inclusive of miracles, like, like water into wine, the parting of the Red Sea. It's broader than that. Powerful workings, I think, means more than that. And we're going to look at the Corinthian context to try to dive in and understand this. See, the Corinthians were obsessed with this word, power, that's translated miracles here. And Paul, throughout the letter, consistently corrects their obsession with power. Power, and he does that by bringing them back to the mystery of the cross of Jesus Christ. Because it's at the cross of Jesus that God shows his power. His world shaping, life bringing power came through a crucified Savior. And that power is stronger and even the most outward displays of miraculous signs. What God accomplished on the cross of Jesus was more than he accomplished at the parting of the Red Sea. Where is power to be seen? In Jesus, in his cross. That's instructive for us, I think, because just like the Corinthians, we might not think of the cross as being powerful. We might be inclined to read passages like this one in hunger and thirst just to see miracles happening in, in the, the seats here in, in the theater. And unless we see those miracles, we're not satisfied that we've seen the power of God at work. But that's not right. Because Paul knows the greatest miracle of all is when the gospel of a crucified Savior takes roots in the hearts of God's people when through the gospel of a crucified Savior, he changes a sinful person living in their pride to become a sacrificial, humble person who follows Jesus in humility. And there's a really, really great example of a run-of-the-mill work of the miraculous power of Jesus in the life of a weak person uh, in this. Did you know that the slave trade was toppled not by the rich and the powerful. I don't know if you know that. You probably do. I think we all know the rich and the powerful benefited from the slave trade. It didn't topple it. No, it was toppled by men and women like Benjamin Lay. Benjamin Lay was a weak and a small man. He was not powerful outwardly. He was four foot seven inch tall. He was hunchbacked. He was ugly and despised. And yet he was a perfect example of God's miraculous power of the cross at work through weakness. See, Benjamin Lay was one of the very first, perhaps the very first, properly speaking, abolitionists. He lived uh, in the early 1720s and he fought to end the slave trade far before it was cool. It didn't have any momentum at all. And his life had been changed when he met the mercy of Jesus Christ and he saw the glory of God and the weakness and the power and the mystery of the power that's shown in the cross of Jesus. He was wrecked by it. It changed him. And then he labored. He saw this isn't right. He gave his life then to participate in what Jesus was doing To push back against evils and wickedness with the power of God. How did he do it? By laying his life down as a servant. By suffering a lot. By pouring out his life to see the world change for good. And God worked powerfully and effectively through the cross-like sufferings of Benjamin Lay to bring a great good into this world. The end of slavery. I want you to look next at, at verse 10 and, and the gifts of prophecy and discerning prophecy. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. Now I've again combined two here and I've included them because of 1 Thessalonians five nineteen to 22, which says this, Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good and abstain from every form of evil. See, I think what Paul is getting at and what God has been doing is that when he gifts the church with prophecy, which he always does in a wide variety of ways that we'll see, he also gifts the church with those who have discernment, who can discern and separate what is good from what is evil, what is according to God's word from what is not according to God's word. So what is prophecy? Is it telling the future? Is it writing substantive documents that we have in our Bibles like uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah? Well, yes, I think, and and also no. You see, the more you study all the ways that prophecy is used in scripture, you gotta get a bigger and bigger notepad, right? Because there's a lot of ways and a wide variety of ways that, that prophecy is operational in the Bible. What do you do with John the Baptist, for example? <laughs> Jesus called him a prophet, right? But other than talking about there's going to be one who comes after me who's greater than me, whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, he didn't talk about the future very much. You know what John did mostly? He preached the Bible. (laughs) And he said, hey, you guys need to repent and turn from your sin. You need to trust that God is real. You need to live according to his word. You need to be baptized to turn away from those things. And he spoke those words powerfully by the Holy Spirit and he led a nation to repentance in preparation of the coming of Jesus Christ. What was he? He was a prophet, perhaps the most powerful and glorious prophet in the Bible up until the time of Jesus. He talks about, Jesus talks about uh, John being the greatest of uh, of men who've been born of women or the greatest human being who's, who's been alive until the coming uh, of the kingdom of Christ. So what's prophecy? Well, we're going to get into this a lot more in chapter 14. So we're going to keep this a little bit short. Uh, chapter 14 is going to have a lot of stuff about prophecy in tongues. So we'll, we'll cover more of it there. But I do really appreciate this definition by the incredible New Testament scholar and Anglican theologian Anthony Thistleton. And he says this, Prophecy, as a gift of the Holy Spirit, combines pastoral insight into the needs of persons, communities, and situations with the ability to address these with a God given utterance or a longer discourse. And note this whether that's unprompted or prepared with judgment and decision and rational reflection. So he gives room for the, the miraculous, the Spirit works powerfully, and suddenly I know something and I'm going to speak into a situation. Uh, as a word of prophecy. He also gives room for, I think, what we see in Scripture, the the faithful Holy Spirit-led teaching and preaching ministries of many that we see in the Bible. And this leads, he says, leading to challenge, comfort, judgment, and consolation. But ultimately, it always builds up the addresses. So what is prophecy? It's speaking the word of God, led by the Spirit of God, in a variety of ways powerfully, and to real people, so that we're changed, so that we're shaped to to live more according to what the scriptures say, to hope in the scriptures, to to follow the scriptures, to to grow in our faith. Agabus, the prophet in the book of Acts, in chapter 11, he prophesied that a famine was going to come, and it was a foretelling, a future telling. And what did that do? It led to the great good of the church, because then the church got together and they prepared and they cared for those who were poor and in need. But prophecy can happen here, and I think it actually happens, crazy City, at this church all the time in men and in women as the Bible teaches. As men and women here, as you guys speak the word of God to one another by the power of the Holy Spirit, exhorting one another, challenging one another. Sometimes maybe you've received an insight even, and you just know, I need to say this to so-and-so. As the Holy Spirit has led you and drawn you to to speak that, that word this i think is what prophecy is again we're going to cover this a lot more uh, in chapter 14 but that's your placeholder and i think that's what prophecy is so we've looked at seven gifts and now, lastly we're going to look at two gifts that remain in verse 10 the gift of tongues and the gift of the interpretation of tongues paul writes to another various kinds of tongues to another the interpretation of tongues all right what on earth are tongues what are these Again, we're going to cover them more, chapter 14. Uh, I'll try to be concise here. Tongues in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 are this. Paul's talking about an unintelligible prayer language to God. That's what he's talking about. And if you're someone that have often heard that these are the same Uh, gift of tongues that we see in the book of Acts where where people speak in different languages and that's what tongues were there. I would just direct your attention to 1 Corinthians 14 verse two, where Paul is very clear that someone speaking in tongues is unintelligible and speaks to God and not to men. And in fact, Paul's argument in 12 to 14 doesn't really make any sense if he's talking about people speaking in just another language. I don't think that's what he's talking about. So, so just read very carefully. I think the, the best weight of exegesis is that this is an unintelligible prayer language to God. And actually throughout the history of the church, what i just said here is a very common interpretation. It's not, a, it's not a recent one. It didn't start with the Pentecostal movement, which puts a lot of emphasis on tongues. Uh, even Tertullian uh, living in the, the third century, um, he believed that what we we're talking about here were unintelligible prayer languages to God. It's a common interpretation. And I think that is what Paul's talking about in this passage. But as we'll see as we get further into chapter 14, of all the gifts that have been given, tongues is perhaps the most controversial. There's a lot of ink spilled about tongues. If you guys have grown up in the Pentecostal church or, or interacted with the Pentecostal church, you know there's controversy about second blessing and believing that only those that speak in tongues have the Holy Spirit. And kind of a very similar thing to the Corinthians is happening uh, in that denomination. And maybe because of that. It feels quite controversial for you as well. Maybe you are like, I don't know these tongues, Brent. You had me in all these things, but not here. I think that the thing that we need to see this morning more than anything else before we get into chapter 14 is just that tongues are a good gift. I think we need to trust the word of God. I want to unpack this for you. Tongues are a good gift given to us by God. See, tongues are a good gift from our Father. And he gives them to us because he cares about us. He's the sort of God who's come to us through Jesus Christ to meet us in our weakness. And this is what tongues are for. Romans 8, 26 to 27 says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches our hearts, knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. See, though Romans 8 is speaking to all Christians, this is the promise for all of you. The Spirit intercedes for you. Praise God. Be thankful for that. He also gives gifts to some to help them give expression to what we can't put into words. What a gift from God. What a condescension of his grace. Christy, let me ask you, how often in your life have you struggled to express to God in prayer your longing for redemption? How often have you longed or desired to to praise Jesus adequately for who he really is? And yet in your prayers, all you can really say is just praise you, Lord. I don't know what else to say. How often have you struggled through your faltering intercession for others to know how to pray for them well? How often have you cried out to God for his mercy through Jesus? And you're just like, I don't know. I don't know how more articulate to get than have mercy, oh Lord. (laughs) So what a gift. I don't have this gift, but I would love this gift so that I would be assisted in my prayers to to pour out in, in noise and expression the inner desires and longings of my heart to God. I would love to have that gift. Maybe you have that gift. See, God is good to give this gift to condescend to us in our weakness with mercy and with help. Praise Jesus. And we know God gives gifts for the common good. So we might ask, how is this private gift that blesses us? How can this be good and useful for others? Well, think about this. Doesn't God, isn't he the kind of God who uses the warmth and intimacy of maybe someone else's prayer life in the church, someone else's worship experience in the church. Doesn't he use that to encourage you? I think that God is the kind of God who gives gifts like this, a special experience with him that aren't just to be kept to ourselves, but actually warm the congregation to kind of free us from the frozen chosen. Right? You know, like, like we're just, we're just so, Uh, still and unexpressive in our worship, but God's like, I'm gonna bless that church. This member of the body is gonna warmly, rejoicingly know me in this powerful way and that will bless the rest of them. It doesn't mean that that person has more of God than you do. It means they've been gifted in a different way. A way that is different than you and useful for the building up of the entire church. And Paul also goes on, and he says a lot more about this in chapter 14. And he's really clear that this gift must be used privately unless there is an interpreter. It's not to be used in a worship service. Not unless there's a gift of interpretation that goes along with it. And when that happens, I think what we see is this, is that when there's an interpreter, we realize the words that are spoken, the prayers that are made to God are prayers full of truth that we all already know and believe from the Bible, but deeply encouraging and useful in the moment to build us up in Christ Jesus for his glory. See, all throughout this passage on gifts, note this. It's the spirit who gives as he wills, not as you will. Look at verse 11. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So Christ said, don't grow envious or comparative. These gifts really aren't about you. They're not even given to us so that we might think of them as something that we possess because the Spirit apportions them to each one individually as he wills. They're just a gift that we've received to be useful for God. They're all God's gifts to bring us into his wonderful work of remaking this broken world as he desires according to his wisdom. See, all of this is done to the strength and to the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. I just want to end with this: Christ City, worship Jesus, the Giver. Live for Jesus, who has gifted His church. Obey Him and serve Him with joy. Would you pray with me? Father, we want to grow in your gifts. We want to receive more of your spirit to grow in this way. We ask that you would pour out your spirit upon us to be useful for your kingdom. God, help us uh, to just be obedient and to serve. Help us to trust you, to delight that you are a generous God who apportions as you will, and that we get to participate in your work. Thank you, Father. Thank you, God. Amen.